Our family was in Reno last night for a football game. Our two oldest boys, Peyton and Brady, are on the football team at Valley Christian Academy. By the way, we have uh, four players from our team who are a part of our church here. So if you're looking for something to do on a Friday night, way to support your church family. Anyway, we were, we were out pretty late. I got home about 1.30 in the morning, and I was in bed by 1.45 thinking I need to get up at 5 a.m. And so I, I laid there for about 30 minutes thinking about how I had to get up at 5 a.m. So I couldn't fall asleep. I was worried I wasn't going to get enough sleep. It made no sense. So a friend texted me and said, this might be the first Sunday that you fall asleep during one of your sermons. (laughs) On the other side of this wall to your left is a pictorial timeline of our church. Some of you have seen it. And if you look carefully, you'll find a picture of myself with John Piper. And several of you have asked me about it. It is from a conference that I attended several years ago, but it's funny to me that before I had that picture taken on, on, on many occasions, especially in my mind, I had poked fun of people who wanted to take their picture with someone famous. In fact, I can still remember being at that conference in the morning that picture was taken, I can remember wrestling with the idea, um, even going in and out of the conference center several times, going back and forth between this is silly and this would be awesome. (laughs) I finally caved and then I asked Dr. Piper if I could have my picture taken with him. And since then, That picture has provided several opportunities for me to embellish and pretend that there is more to my relationship with Dr. Piper than there actually is. Is that John Piper? Yes, it is. Do you know him? I think the picture speaks for itself. It's not technically a lie. The church in Corinth had several preachers and teachers that they looked up to. In fact, some looked up to these teachers so much that it became a source of contention within the church. It became a source of disunity within the church. And that is actually the very first problem that Paul brings up in his letter. And he's going to spend the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians dealing with it. And this morning, we are going to study his introduction to that issue. And as we do that, as we study Paul's introduction to this issue of the disunity in the church at Corinth, remember that this is... God's word. And remember that 
It is in God's word that we learn who we are and more importantly, who God is. And when God's word is preached, if it's inspired by God, then it will inevitably end in God's glory and your good. That's what we desire. That's what we hope for every time we preach God's word. So before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, fill our minds with truth, fill our hearts with affections, and move our wills to love you and love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you are using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you if you don't have your own Bible, you'll find today's text on page 618. One of the reasons... Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth is to formally address negative reports he has received about them, including reports of sexual immorality and lawsuits. We will get to all of those, but first, he has another one. It is a a more significant problem that has come to his attention, and he is going to spend roughly four chapters addressing it. So chapter 1, verse 10, we'll begin today all the way through chapter 4, verse 21. So he's just getting started today. He's setting the foundation. So in chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, Paul does three things that are going to set the foundation for the rest of his words on this subject. Number one, he will identify the problem. Number two, he will give an instruction. And number three, he will ask three questions. That's what he does in our text today. He's going to identify the problem, he's going to give a general instruction, and he is going to ask three heart-probing questions. So let's begin with Paul's introduction of the problem, which he identifies in verses 11 and 12. Look with me. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers. So there's the problem. Quarreling among you. And we'll see in verse 10 that this quarreling is leading to and is between divisions in this church. In other words, there are factions, parties, or teams within this local church and they're fighting with one another. So what are these opposing teams? What are these differing parties within the church? And Paul makes it clear in verse 12. He explains, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So there it is. Those are the different teams. You've got a Paul team. You've got an Apollos team a Kephos team, 
and a Christ team, and apparently they do not get along with one another. 1 verse 10 makes it clear that they disagree. Chapter 3 verse 3 will say that they're jealous of one another. And chapter 3 verse 21 will tell us that they're looking down on one another. So they're acting ungodly. They're not loving one another. They're not treating one another well. And they're grouped up in these divisions or factions within the church, organizing themselves under these various teachers, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. Now, before we move on, I want you to just take a minute and consider what it would have been like to be a church member in Corinth, sitting in the room when this letter was being read for the first time. That was the custom. A church would receive a letter from Paul or Peter or John, and then they would gather up the whole church in a room, and they would read the letter out loud. They would read it publicly. And if you were there, and you were listening to an elder read this letter, the first nine verses would be pretty sweet, wouldn't they? Verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul, we're getting a letter from Paul. Paul was famous. Probably was, he was probably the most well-known Christian alive. We're getting a letter from Paul. It'd be like us getting a letter from Billy Graham or, or J.I. Packer or John Piper. I mean, I get a lot of letters from John Piper, but for all of you, you know, it'd be a big deal. Then in verse 4, so it starts off really well. Then in verse 4, he begins thanking God for them. And he brings up the grace that is evident in their speech and in their knowledge and in their testimony. So if I was there and I was listening, I would feel very, very positive because you, right, you're nervous. Like we have a letter that's going to be read to us from Paul. You're nervous, but it starts off really well. So I'm feeling positive until verse 11. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. So that would be the air out of the balloon. And can you imagine the glares that would have been sent in Chloe's direction? This entire letter that Paul, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is in response to information that he has received in one of two ways. First, by a letter written to him on behalf of the entire church. And second, by individual reports. Members reporting to him things that were going on within the church. And apparently, Chloe made one of those reports. So, side note. This is the way it should be. Honest and above board. Paul does not say, I've heard some things. Paul doesn't just say, it has been reported to me. While protecting the identity of the one who told them. He doesn't just say it has been reported to me. He says it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Which means that Chloe 
was willing to risk her relationships for her church. It would have been easier on her, but far less helpful for the church if she remained anonymous. And so many, when they have a confrontation, when they have a criticism, when they have truth that needs to get out, want to remain anonymous. Let someone else deal with it. So as a general rule, for example, if someone says to me, and this happens occasionally, if someone says to me, I want to tell you something, but you have to promise me that you won't tell anyone. I don't want to hear it. And I'll say that. I may have said that to some of you. That's a promise I cannot make. I can't be held prisoner like that. And that's what somebody is doing. If we have a relationship, you need to trust me with this information to do whatever I think is best with this information. But I can't guarantee that no one's ever going to hear about this and no one's ever going to know that you said this. So Chloe was no coward. To be sure, she was no coward. She told Paul what was going on. And in fact, it's the first thing that Paul brings up in his letter. So back to the problem now. In verse 11, Paul says there is quarreling among you. And then right in verse 12, Paul identifies four factions under organized under four different teachers. So those are the factions. Paul, Apollos, Kephas and Christ. And the last one is not as good as it sounds. We'll explain. Paul is talking about these all negatively. So let me just say something brief about each of these teams. And as I do, remember this. Keep this in mind. These four teachers are in agreement. The teachers are in agreement. These four teachers, they, they believe and teach and preach the same doctrine. So these allegiances are not allegiances to theology. They are allegiances to people. They are allegiances to personality and style. It's this kind of a thing. I like the way Apollos says it. Or I prefer Peter's emphasis. Or I find Paul's approach dull. So the church is being fragmented over personal preference, which is not uncommon. This church is being fragmented over personal preference, which is not uncommon, and it's worth Paul's address. So I follow Paul, some said. That's no surprise. After all, Paul planted the church. He was their first pastor, so some would favor him. He probably represented the good old days and the good old ways. I follow Apollos, some said. Apollos followed in Paul's footsteps and he preached after Paul's exit. Most likely, some preferred Apollos over Paul because he was an eloquent speaker. Acts 18.24 says Apollos was a native of Alexandria and was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And Paul, by his own admission, was not a great speaker. In 2 Corinthians 11.6, he calls himself unskilled in speaking. 
I follow Kephas, some said. Kephas is Greek for Peter. So this is the apostle Peter. This is one of Jesus' closest friends. He was the leader of the apostles. So it's understandable that he would have people's allegiance. As well, unlike Paul, Peter was married. And so families may have identified more with him. And then finally, some said, I follow Christ, which may sound good. But Paul is speaking negatively about it. S. Lewis Johnson says, they were the kind of individuals that sit lightly to human leadership, a kind of super spiritual elite. And I think he's exactly right. There are some Christians who make it a point to criticize all teachers. They look down their noses on Christians who benefit from teachers. And you might bring something up that you learned from a preacher or from a teacher. And these people would be sort of dismissive of it. Why? I don't care about that so much. I care about what Christ has to say and not a teacher as if those two things were opposed. They don't need teachers is the idea. They don't need preachers. They don't need creeds. They don't need confessions. They're usually not committed to a local church because they can't find one that is good enough for them. Here's the thing. It sounds good. It sounds like they are boasting in Christ, but they are actually boasting in themselves as the real followers of Christ. So it's still a bad team. Here's what all these people have in common. The Paul team, the Apollos team, the Peter team, the Christ team. And it gets down to the root of the issue. Look at verse 12. Can you see it and hear it? I follow. I follow. I follow. I follow. These are good teachers. And they should be appreciated. And they should be supported. And they should be Listen to, but they should not be used as an occasion for division. So I've read through these first four chapters where Paul is talking about this division. I read through these chapters several times. And here would be my summary of the problem that Paul is introducing in our text today. Here's a summary of the problem. In the Corinthian church... There was an immature allegiance to certain teachers that was resulting in division through ungodly behavior. We'll probably stick with that as we study these first four chapters. That's the issue. That in the Corinthian church, there was an immature allegiance to certain teachers that resulted in division through ungodly behavior. And we'll see. As we read through these chapters, they were fighting, they were disagreeing, they were jealous, they were arrogant, they were puffed up, they were looking down on one another. So that's the problem. That's a summary of the problem that is in these four chapters. But for now, Paul just summarizes it in verse 11 by saying, there's quarreling among you. There's fighting among you. So that's the problem. So next, let's look at Paul's 
prescription. Here is his overarching instruction. He's going to have a lot of instruction in the chapters to come, but it all sort of fits underneath this. Here is his general, primary, basic, overarching instruction, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There's a few words in the first part of this verse. Look with me. Before Paul gives his actual instruction that are important to note. First, the word appeal. Paul could have said, I command you. But he doesn't. He uses a much more diplomatic word. Appeal. That word is more like urge. Or encourage. Or even request. Second, he addresses them as brothers. He could have said knuckleheads. Brothers is different. In fact, he uses the word brothers more in this letter than any of his other letters except for Romans. Brothers is a term of endearment. And then third, Paul communicates the weight of his concern by making his appeal. What does it say? By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what all of that means. Paul His instruction is gentle at this point. The way he gives his instruction to start off with is very gentle. He begins with soft words. And if that's all it takes, mission accomplished. But here's something interesting. Look with me down at the very end of Paul's words on this subject. So look at the end of chapter 4 if you have your Bibles open. This will be at the end of this section on division that he begins with gentle words. And then he says this in verses 19 through 21. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is typical Paul. He starts soft and only gets sharp if he needs to. That's a very good example for us. Your friends, your children, other members in your church. We start soft, gentle tone, soft words. And those words only get hard and only get sharp if they need to. And sometimes they need to. But that's not how Paul begins. So with a gentle tone, here again is his basic instruction. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he lists three things. All of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There's three things he says there. First, Paul says that all of you agree. This is a pretty serious agreement Paul is advocating for here because this literally means speak the same things. He's calling them to speak the same things. Second, he instructs that there be no 
divisions among you. The word for division, that word division, is the same word used in Mark 2.21 to describe a tear in cloth. Remember the story there is you... You sew new cloth onto old cloth and then you wash it and it shrinks and tears. So this word division refers to a tear. So Paul wants no divisions, no tears, no cracks in the church. So he exhorts them to eliminate divisions. And then third, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And the word united there is the word used in Mark 1.19 to describe what James and John were doing as they were mending or fixing the holes in their fishing net. So the word division here means a tear, and the word for unity means sewing back up the tear. So that's what Paul is calling them to. So put it all together with me. Think about this. Paul wants them to speak the same things. He wants, in other words, he wants their words to agree with one another. But not only their words. He wants their minds to be in agreement. He's not looking for a superficial agreement. No, he's appealing to them to be in agreement as deeply as Possible, not to just be united in word, but united in thought. That's deep unity. United in thinking and united in living. That's a serious level of agreement. Now, of course, Christians are not going to agree on everything. Have you ever met two Christians that agree on everything? Have you ever met two Christian teachers that agree on everything? Have you ever met two Christian theologians that agree on everything? So let me give you an example. Here is how this looks here in our church. We have what we've called the Veritas Church Member Doctrinal Statement. It's not very long. This is two pages. There is a lot more truth in the Bible than what's on these two pages. But these are 16 points. 16 points. And everyone who is officially or formally a member of this church family has said, I believe those 16 points. Now, there may be other things outside those 16 points, and there are, where there's disagreement. But on those 16 points, they are in this closed hand and we totally agree on all of those. And that is significant, substantial, deep unity. So we don't argue over these. We don't fight over these. We don't quarrel over these. This is what we believe as a church. But. That's not all we believe as a church. Those 16 points are not all that I believe as a Christian. They're not all that you believe as a Christian. So so there are many things in churches that we disagree over. And there is not a local church that doesn't disagree over many other things. If they say they don't, it's not true. 
many things we might disagree over. Let me just list a few. And some of you are going to want to just start arguing as soon as I say these topics. <laughs> Eschatology. Eschatology. Some of you right now want to start moving to certain parts of the room. Post-millennial here, all-millennial there, pre-millennial outside. <laughs> but some of you feel like that. I know who you are. I'm a preterist. I'm a partial preterist. I'm a full preterist. I mean, it goes on and on and on, right? So we disagree over eschatology, right? We agree that Jesus is coming back. That's about it. When? We disagree. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit, and whether or not they are still active today, specifically things like prophecy and tongues. We might have disagreements here. Music. I don't know if you know this. There are disagreements over music and what the music should sound like and how loud and quiet the music should be and how fast it should be or how slow it should be. We're pretty good at that in this church, but you've probably been in other churches where that was a big deal. Baptism. We have disagreements within church over baptism, reformed theology, marriage and family. What's the place of age-based ministry or life stage church ministry, biblical counseling or Christian counseling? So there's lots of things, right, that we might disagree on. We don't all have to think the same thing. I don't go around introducing myself as a complementarian reformed congregational cessationist Baptist. That's what I am, through and through. I didn't mention eschatology there, notice. (laughs) I'll be honest, I don't know. I don't know, I haven't sorted that out yet. But I can say with confidence that I'm a complementarian, reformed, congregationalist, cessationist, Baptist. Now, some of you, it just sounds weird. You have no idea what that means, and that's fine. Others of you want to fight me right now. Your heart is like some stirring things up. You're, you're about to walk out. You can't believe it. So we're not going to agree on everything, but we keep the main things the main thing. So practically, this, this exhortation that, that, that Paul is giving the church in Corinth, and it's certainly applicable to, to our church today, it, it goes like this. Number one, you make clear where you stand as a church when it comes to what the Bible teaches. So you don't, you don't hide this, you don't ignore this, you, you, you don't say things when people ask you what you believe, like, well, I believe the Bible. You don't say things like, no creed but Christ. Well, that's not true. You, you actually believe the Bible teaches something. What, it, what do you believe? So we put it out there. Make clear, this is what we should do as Christians, in your relationships, in your church. Make clear where we stand. Paint those lines clearly. Wide lines, bright lines, identify the lines. I believe this, I don't believe that. And then, love one another across those lines. It's all of that. We make clear where we stand. We paint the lines clearly. And then we love and respect one another across those lines. This is illustrated every week in a high school football game. Before every high school football game, you have two teams, right, that are lined up on opposite sidelines. 
Okay, they have two diametrically opposed goals in that game. Each wants to defeat the other. Now, before the game begins, there is a football tradition. It's a great tradition. There are representatives from each team. They are called team captains. Now, if the tradition is done right, those team captains from each team walk out before the game begins to the middle of the field, and they march out with their teammates holding hands. They hold hands, walk out to the middle of the field, and meet face-to-face with the other team's captains who are also holding hands, and then they shake hands. They don't hold their hand. They don't hold their hand. This is, this is my team. I'm holding their hands, but I'm going to respect you before the game even begins. And then the game begins. And football especially is a battle. And it's violent. And then at the end of the game, if the tradition is done well, what do all those teammates do? They go back out to the middle of the field and they shake hands again. So we may be on different teams here. We may be on different teams. We agree on the gospel. We must agree on the gospel. That's a closed hand. That's worth fighting over. If we agree on the gospel, there are many other things that we may disagree on. But we must love one another across those lines of disagreement. Okay, this is what Paul is talking about. I know you got these personalities and you like this teacher and you like that teacher and you like this teacher. And and you've also got some disagreement in what you think the Bible says here and what it says there and what it says here. But you need to strive for a deep level of agreement. And I would argue that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you must love one another. You must care for one another. You must respect one another. So let's move on to the third part of the text. The third and final part of this sermon. Paul's identified the problem. He's given his primary instruction. And now he's going to ask three questions. Three heart-penetrating rhetorical questions. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let's look at each of them. Is Christ divided? That's Paul's first question. He's writing to the church in Corinth saying, you're divided, but is Christ divided? He'll say later on in this letter, Christ is the head and the church is his body. You cannot separate the church. You cannot separate the church from Christ. You cannot separate the head from the body. You as the body of Christ are the body of Christ, and He is your head, and you are one. So there's division, he's saying, in your church. But he brings him back and says, is there division in Christ? Does Christ favor some over others? Does Christ love some in this church more than He loves others? Have some in the church only been given part of Christ? Is he divided or have they all been given all of Christ? 
It's a heart-penetrating question. His second question, was Paul crucified for you? This is humble, I think, because Paul goes after his team. He, he could have said, why are you following Apollos? Was he crucified for you? But he just takes that band of brothers that's looking to him and has a, a, an over-allegiance to him. And he says, listen, was I crucified for you? Why this, he's saying, why this allegiance to me as a preacher and teacher? What's the answer to that question? No. Paul wasn't crucified for them. Third question. Final question. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Matthew 28, they would have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They would have been baptized into the name of Jesus. They were not baptized in the name of Paul. He goes on to say in verse 14, listen to what he says. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one, why? So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So you see what's happening. Apparently, some people are taking pride in the fact that they were converted by Paul, that they came to Christ under Paul, that they were maybe even baptized by Paul. And Paul doesn't want that. For, here's his reason, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul says, I only baptized a few of you because Christ didn't send me to baptize you. He sent me to preach the gospel. And not only that, Paul preached in a way that highlighted the truth and not his speaking ability. Paul did not try to win his listeners with stories and anecdotes and clever speech and motivation. Rather, he tried to win his hearers with the bare facts of the gospel. He was known for this. And he brings it up again here. So what is Paul doing here? He has a lot more that he's going to say about division and about unity. But what is the point of these three rhetorical questions? He's identified the problem. He's given a basic instruction that they need to agree with one another, that they need to love one another. And then these, before he goes on, he asks these three rhetorical questions. Think about it. What is he doing? He's resetting their focus. He's resetting their focus. He's getting their focus off of him and off of Apollos, off of Peter. He's getting their focus off of themselves. He's readjusting and resetting their focus back on Christ. 
That's his goal. So let me close by tying this week's sermon to last week's. If you weren't here, that's okay. I'm going to repeat the main point. But I want you to see what Paul is doing in the very beginning of his letter. In verse 1, all the way through verse 17. And let me give you three points in conclusion. Number one, and this was last week, this is clear in the first nine verses, that we, Christians, are children of God who have been called and kept by Christ. You remember that? Some of you remember that. Those of us who are Christians, we are, and we're thankful for this, we are children of God who have been called and kept by Jesus Christ. This is true for you if you are a Christian today. You did not save yourself. You were saved by Christ. You have been baptized in the name of Christ. It means you have been united to Christ. You've been united to his death so that his death counts for you. You've been united to his resurrection so that his resurrection counts for you. Christ has died for you. He has saved you. And this morning, as you sit there, you have all of Christ. You have all there is to have. There is no real division in the body of Christ. We're the super Christians and the the varsity Christians and then the junior varsity Christians and the elite Christians and the subpar Christians. It's nothing like that. If you're a Christian, you have all that Christ is right now. He has called you. He has called you to himself. He snapped you out of it. Opened your eyes and opened your ears so that you saw who you were standing before a righteous God. You saw who Jesus was. You knew of his love and affection for you. You believed the gospel and you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you're a believer today. And God has promised that he has not only saved you, but he's going to keep you. The good work that he started in you, he's going to see it through to completion. So that that was last week. We are children of God who have been called and kept by Christ. Now, here's how this ties into what Paul says today. So the church owes all loyalty to Christ. And no one else. And no one else. We owe all our loyalty to Jesus Christ and never any teacher. There's teachers we love. There's teachers we're thankful for. We learn from them. We should listen to them. It's one of God's ways of teaching his people. We're thankful. We're grateful But our allegiance is never to a teacher or to a preacher. Paul is saying, what? I didn't die for you. Apollos didn't die for you. John Piper didn't die for you. John Calvin didn't die for you. Billy Graham didn't die for you. J.I. Packer didn't die for you. Greg Lowry didn't die for you. Whoever it is. 
Whatever it is that you listen to and have been helped by today or in the past, they did not die for you. They did not call you to Christ and they sure can't keep you in Christ. This is Paul's point with these questions. All our loyalty is to Jesus Christ. And then third and final point. Therefore, divisions in the church are contrary to the gospel. This is why he'll spend four chapters addressing it. It's a big deal. There should not be divisions within the church. There should not be divisions within the local church. When there is, we lie about who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Because God says that we are the body of Christ. We are one as the body of Christ. And we're to try and live that out. So all allegiance is to Christ. And divisions, wherever they are, will be weakened and broken. Ultimately, as we give our allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. So every Sunday, following every sermon, we reaffirm our allegiance to Christ by taking communion together. And we do this every Sunday in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ in remembrance of what he has accomplished for us on the cross through his death. Later on in this letter that we're studying, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we are proclaiming and remembering the Lord's sacrificial death this morning. What an honor. You are invited to take communion with us if you are a baptized believer. If you have confessed your sin and placed your trust for salvation in the work of Christ And if you are a part of a local church, this or another, that faithfully preaches the gospel, we'll have leaders at the front to serve. Please empty into the center aisle and come forward and then return to your seats from the outside. Please wait then. We'll eat the bread and drink the juice together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word today, We're turning our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son. May you be glorified as we remember and proclaim his sacrifice in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. In his name we pray. Amen.